Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I really feel humbled to, to get to speak with you today and, and really just excited I could even be with you here today with the changing situation and all of that. But I just want to express my honor. It, it really is a humbling thing for me uh, to, to get to speak and, and share with you this morning. Uh, I, I know Jason prayed for me, but I want to pray for us, yeah. right? Because um, I believe very strongly that anytime the word is shared that it's not so much about the person sharing the word. I think the person sharing the word is serving a function in that moment. But I, but I think what we all really want is that God talks to us. And we know that God does it through the body, right? And, and, and so uh, when, when I hear a speaker, I'm not just thinking, let me see if that's a good speaker or not. How, how do they give me some new insights? I'm going, God, would you talk to us? <laughs> Right, And so I wonder sometimes if our lack of hunger for the word causes the speaker to not be so great. <laughs> and my point is not to put it, put it on you, except that we all come together and we should have a longing. God, talk to us. It's not just about is this person insightful or have a few new things to consider. It's about what does God want to say to us? Do, do, do we leave the place informed or transformed? Meaning, meaning is something provoking us? And, and I know for me, anytime I gather together, whether I'm getting the chance to share or someone else is sharing, I really want to be transformed. Yeah. I, I want to encounter the, the Lord. So I, I want to pray for us, that the Lord would share whatever's on his heart and mind this morning, so that when we're done, we love Jesus more. Amen. We love him just a little bit more. We, we saw something maybe we haven't seen, or we saw something uh, uh, we'd seen before, but it touched our hearts again. And it produces a shift and a transformation. So, Jesus, we say thank you for this awesome privilege that we get to gather together as the body. We just say thank you. That, that's a privilege and an honor. And you promise that when we gather, you're in our midst, that, that we are living stones. And when the people of God gather, it's a temple. It's a dwelling place of God. And we thank you for that promise. And today, we put our confidence in that promise, regardless of what we might be feeling. Maybe we had a, what we would consider a dry week. But your word tells us that when the people of God gather, it's a temple, and God dwells. And so we say thank you for that promise. And now we ask you that you'd speak to us. You'd open up your heart to us this morning. You'd say whatever you want to say. Maybe there are things that we haven't thought about or considered that you want to speak about this morning. We just ask you to do it. We, we long to hear whatever you want, want to say this morning. And we ask you in confidence. And we ask you, would you talk to us about your son? You love him so much. And you want us in his image. You want us in his likeness. And so we ask you to speak to us about him. We ask you to touch our hearts and our minds and our imaginations that when this is done, we would love your son Jesus just a little bit more. And so we ask you to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, my, my topic this morning is, is, is what, what I like to call discipleship begins with beholding. So, so some of you may know that's a topic that's very dear to me. It, it really impacted my life very, very deeply. And so that's the topic I, I, I want to talk about. Let me say this, though, at the beginning, just because I need to say this as my disclaimer, okay? As, as we talk about the subject, I'm not trying to address or critique other people I don't think have it right. I, I just need to say that at the beginning because that'll give me liberty to just say what's in my heart, and I don't want you to go, is he talking about that other book that so-and-so wrote? I have no other books in my mind on the topic at this moment. There are many helpful books Right, so so just please understand. I'm I'm not trying to address something. I'm bringing you into what I believe a, a paradigm the Scripture gives us that has impacted my life quite quite deeply. So I just want to say that because that'll give me give me liberty to kind of say to to say what's what's on my heart. And what I want to talk about this morning is what is the goal of discipleship? Because 
if we don't have the goal right, we can end up actually in the wrong trajectory. And, and you know how it is. If you start just a little bit in the wrong trajectory and start walking, you can find yourself quite far from where you meant to be. But it only takes a little bit of a small shift in the beginning, and you end up over here, and you were meant to be over there. Right? So, so it's very important that we go, what is the goal? What is the objective? Because that then informs everything that we do. Right? We might not change anything we're doing. Again, I'm not imagining that, you know, that we need to correct everything we're doing. It's just, what's the end goal? What do we have in mind? You know, sometimes I like to think about an Olympic athlete. Right? An, an Olympic athlete does all the same stuff that most of us do. Maybe not everything, but, but most of it, right? They have a family. They have friends. They have to eat. They have to sleep. But everything in their life is oriented on one objective. I'm trying to get to the most elite thing in the world. And because of that, I eat, but there are things I don't eat. I have friends, but, uh, but, but the way I relate to those friends is affected. I go to school, but I'm very disciplined in the way I structure it. Right? Now, if you did those things in an isolated way, they don't make sense. Right? Why, why do you get up 4 a.m.? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? But when you realize, oh, I've been captured by a goal. I can actually make it to the world stage. I can compete, and I love to compete. Then all your decisions make sense. If you are doing them independently of that, it's kind of strange and, to be honest, exhausting. Why are you doing all these things? It doesn't make any sense. Until you go, wait a minute. Oh, you've been captured. You love this at this uh, athletic activity, this competition, whatever it is, it drives you. So you're reorienting all your things. So your goal is not just, I want to eat this. I want to get up 4 a.m. I want to do that. Your goal is this, and so you've oriented certain things, things around it. So what is the goal of discipleship? And then what, what, what is the biblical method that the, the, the scripture gives us? And then how do we evaluate our discipleship? Where, where are we in the process? And the first verse I want to read is, is, is found in, in Philippians 3. I want to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. These are words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and I believe these words are significant because I believe Paul is describing the fruit of his discipleship. He's saying that this is what it looks like to be discipled. This is how I think. And, and I think these verses are, are very significant for us. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that that comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The, the reason I think this passage is so important is typically if I said, is that person discipled, you would evaluate all their behaviors. Right? Okay, yeah, they go church once a week. They're really disciple. They go twice. They come to worship night. <laughs> you know, they're at every event. Um, or, you know, their, their family is in good standing. They, they walk with integrity in the marketplace and in their interactions. And, of course, those, those things are all part of the fruit of discipleship. Right? If we are discipled, we will be active in the local body. We will interact in our families well. We will walk with in integrity. But I find it interesting that that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, I've become completely captured with how awesome I'm doing. Philippi, you need to know that I walk with absolute integrity as I sow my tents. Does he? Of course he does. But that's not what's captured him. right? He, he doesn't describe the disciplines that he keeps, though he was I think a very disciplined man. He doesn't describe the integrity that his life expresses, though that's important. And it is obviously a, a part of Paul's life. 
He says this. He says, I've counted everything else as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Now, now I think sometimes, just, just to be honest, that Bible translations are written in a little bit of awkward English, in my opinion. Like, who, who talks like this, to be honest? Like, we can grasp it, but, but sometimes because of the language, which, which has been carried down because of tradition, and we value that, but because of the language, it can sometimes be a little bit awkward, and we can struggle to grasp what Paul's trying to say. And so we can say, what's the surpassing worth? I probably haven't had a conversation in 20 years where someone said, let me express the surpassing worth of whatever, right? And so it helps sometimes to rephrase. What, what, what is Paul saying? He's saying, guys, everything else in my life is a loss compared to this. I've found something incredibly valuable to me. It's, it's not just that it's right. It's valuable. And it's so precious to me. What's, what's the thing that's precious to you, Paul? You, you lost your bad habits, right? You did what? And he goes, no, no. It's the knowledge of Jesus, right? And, if, and, and what he's basically saying is, I've reoriented my whole life, not just because it was the right thing to do, but because I've discovered the worth of that person. He's more valuable to me than anything else. I've seen... Uh, a beauty that I've not seen anywhere else. It's so captured and captivated me that I've counted everything else secondary and loss. And this statement's so powerful because if you remember Paul, he basically says, I was among the best of all people, right? I kept the law, guys. I kept all the rules. If we're honest, he probably kept the rules better than us, right? Like he, he said, I walked with the strictest integrity. He I hate to say it, he probably had more Bible verses memorized than us. Uh, you, you could probably invite him for a weekend, and he could do how many sessions you want. You know, I'll do knowledge of God, I'll do whatever. But in his perfection, so to speak, which he speaks about in, 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 in other verses, he has an encounter on the road to Damascus, you might remember, in Acts chapter 9, and the perfect man who could give Bible seminars to all of us finally encounters the divine human, the risen Lord, and Paul only had one response, or he had a first response. And it's really shocking if you think about it. His first response is, who are you? I know all the Bible verses. I've kept all the rules. Now I've met you. I don't know who you are. Who are you? Right, and, and, and I think that actually profoundly shaped Paul's vision of discipleship that we'll look at in a minute because Paul wasn't discipled by better behavior. He had the best behavior. He discovered a person and then he went, I didn't know God was like this. It reoriented him and made him into a different person. He described the worth of that, of that person. And then he said, I've suffered loss because of this. Now, here, here's the thing. Paul's suffering loss has to be combined with Paul saying, I've discovered the surpassing worth of a person. Because often we're calling people, make a sacrifice for Jesus. Do your best, right? Whatever that is. Give your life to Jesus. Obey the will of God, whatever it is. And I think Paul would say, yes, but you're meant to connect that to the surpassing worth of Jesus. If you discover the worth of Jesus... All the sacrifices will follow. If you call people to sacrifice, they struggle. And they either end up what, what we would call a bit legalistic. I'm keeping the rules, hoping God's not mad at me. Or they ultimately go, I'm done with this. Why, why are you putting constraints on me when I haven't seen anything valuable and beautiful? So Paul's giving us his paradigm here. I've suffered loss, not just to prove to God I love him, but because I saw and encountered him, he's so different. And I want to be like that, and so I'm willing to suffer all things. You know, I, I loved our liturgy and giving because I think of so many times we've told people, give your money to Jesus, give your money to Jesus. Paul never said that. Do you remember what Paul said? If you can joyfully, cheerfully, out of loving Jesus, make a contribution, let's do it. Let's sow into the kingdom. If you can't be joyful, just wait. 
So different from us, right? We can, no, no, you need to give your money. Of course, we teach the principles. I'm not saying don't teach the principle. But I'm saying Paul's going, let, teach the principle, but, but, but the principle needs to be fueled by I'm discovering a person that I love so much that I want to become like him. Now I, I can engage in the principles. Paul's saying, I've got one a great agenda. I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law. In other words, I don't want my righteousness to be that I kept the rules. Though in other verses he goes, I did. I had a righteousness from the rules. And the rules are helpful. Like we need, Paul in other places instructs us, guys, as followers of Jesus, we don't do these things. We walk with integrity. But he goes, that's not my righteousness. My righteousness is I've discovered the person of Jesus. I've reoriented myself, and he's transforming me. And, and look what he says in verse 10. So that I can know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, become like in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So, so what is Paul saying? He's basically saying, I saw Jesus. I got a revelation of him that so captured me, it reoriented me. And that reorientation is this, I want to become like what I saw. Again, why does Paul say I want to share in his sufferings? We, we, if you read that on its own, you can go, that's challenging. Who wants to just suffer? The, the Bible never calls us to suffer for the sake of suffering. It never calls us to suffer to prove ourselves to God. I'm going to prove I love him. I'm going to do it. The Lord goes, no, 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 no. The, the, the only reason to come into suffering is to be transformed into the likeness of the God who chose suffering for the sake of others. And that's what he says right here. And he goes, guys, I'm working really hard, so God will love me. No, not at all. He goes, I'm striving because I want to attain the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? I want a body like Jesus. I want to be resurrected like him. I want to appear like him. And I think Paul's describing here, this is the fruit of a discipled person. <laughs> right? Sure, they have practical rhythms and disciplines and habits. We don't discard those. Yes, his integrity is high, his, his family interactions are good, but it's possible to have high integrity and healthy families and not be discipled. To be honest, it's possible to have high integrity, good families, and not even know Jesus. It's possible, right? And Paul's saying, that's not what's driving me. That expresses itself because Jesus is the highest man of integrity. Jesus is, is a man that loves well. But that's, that's not what's driving him. It's not what's, what's driving Paul. So this is Paul's expression of what it means to be discipled, which leads me to, okay, so what's the method? How do we do it? And I think Paul captures his methodology most precisely in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I believe this is Paul's methodology because this is how Paul himself came into the faith. He says this, we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord and are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who, who is the Spirit. So Paul basically says, here's the thing. We all do this together. That's an important point because in some parts of the body, when we think discipleship, I think, what is my private personal rhythm I do every day? Again, those rhythms are helpful. But Paul's going, no, this is a corporate dimension. We're going to have to do it together. You can't just do it on your own. God, God will not give you all of himself individually. That would make you isolated and independent and self-sufficient, which is the opposite of the gospel. There, there's actually only one man that independently independently is the fullness of God, Jesus, right? And what does Jesus say about himself? Well, I'm actually the head of a body. So even who I am is dynamically connected to, 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 the, to the rest of God's people. So, so Paul's going, your discipleship is a corporate experience. There are personal rhythms, and those are valuable, but it's a corporate experience. And together we behold the glory of the Lord, and as we behold it, we get transformed. Not just informed, but transformed. Paul was informed before he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. Then he became transformed. Transformed implies process. It implies growth. 
implies development, right? And this comes from the Lord, who, who is the Spirit. So Paul basically says, if you want to be discipled, here's what you need to do. Behold the glory of the Lord. Allow him to make you in his image. Do it with other people and embrace the process. And again, this is how Paul himself was changed. He encountered something on the road to Damascus. He then became part of the body, right? He then embraced a process that 15 years later resulted in his apostolic sending. And, and, the, and the Lord transformed him, him as a person. And this, again, this word beholding, again, I put this in kind of biblish category, <laughs> meaning like I don't, no one ever says behold to me, you know, except when you sing Christmas carols, right? Behold. It's like, okay. Um, but the, the word beholding that, that, that's used here is different from seeing, right? Like I see things every day. I saw a lot of things on the right end today that did not really affect me. Oh, it's a beautiful day. It's a nice day. But it didn't register with me. It, it didn't produce a dramatic uh, effect in any kind. So we see things all the time. Beholding is not seeing. You, you, you can't behold if you just kind of rush in, grab the Sunday service, rush home. Lots of people are probably seeing and wondering why they're not being transformed. Well, because you didn't behold. Well, what's, what's the difference between seeing and beholding? Beholding is, I'm going to actually take a longer glance. I'm going to consider it. it. I'm going to let it touch my emotions, my imagination. I'm going to reflect on it. Like, you, you can't expect to be transformed into Jesus' likeness if you just get the 30-minute sermon on the run. And then the rest of the week, we're rushing around. And we don't take any time to pause and reflect and go, okay, let me just slow down and actually see the person of Jesus. Let me, let me take the message I heard Sunday and through the week, let me just ponder it. Let me consider it. Let me create space for it. Maybe that space occurs on a riding the MRT on the way to work. Like you can fit it into the schedule somehow, but seeing and beholding are not the same thing. I'll give you the example, at least from where I come from, of, what I, of probably the best difference between seeing and beholding. I think the best difference, or best example, at least where I come from, is what happens to a young man when he beholds someone. So I'll give you an example. Where where I come from, a young man often lacks, uh, uh, what shall we say, uh, purpose and meaning and direction. And so, you know, his mom will phone him every weekend. How are you doing in your classes? I'm doing okay, mom. Right? Are you still hanging out with the same friends? Don't worry about it, mom. Right? It's, is, your, it's, is, is your apartment still a mess? Let's not talk about it. Right? Like, have you, have you landed an internship? Not, I'm getting to that. Right? This, and this, this process goes on week after week, month after month. When are you going to get it together? Right? And for a couple years, he's been seeing lots of people. We all see lots of people. But then one day, he walks into his class, and he beholds someone on front row. And he goes, oh, that's, she's very different from the people I've seen. And he beholds, and he looks a little bit longer, and then it begins to touch his thinking and his emotions. right? And, and I like to say that when that happens, you're about 24 hours away from a new wardrobe and an ironing board. Maybe 48, you know, if it's a holiday. But, but <laughs> things start moving fast, right? The, the video game night, all of a sudden, he doesn't show up. Friends are texting him. He's ghosting them. Like, where are you, <laughs> right? His, his mom calls. What, what, what's going on? Oh, mom, I landed that internship. Really? What, what, what happened? <laughs> you know, what, 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 what happened? Right, it's, it's the compulsion of do this, the right thing, hasn't really resonated with him. Now, some, will, some of us will do it out of obligation. We'll go, okay, I want to make dad proud or whatever. And, and that's right, of course, to honor. But if the heart doesn't get engaged, it's very different than when the heart is engaged. And so when, when a young man beholds, all sorts of things change. He starts finding money we never knew he had. Right? Like, uh, before that, he was kind of eating on the run. Right? 
Maybe he goes to the Hawker Center or something. I'm a fast, eat, eat, eat. And next thing you know, it's like, you know where all the finest places are in town. Like, I can't even afford to go there. I've had a job for 20 years. Like, how are you finding all this money? Right, all of a sudden, he shows up at the ballet. Like, wait, wait, you don't like ballet? Like, you don't even know ballet. Oh, no, 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 I beheld someone. And that person is beginning to transform my wardrobe, my career path, my finances, and my ballet, my, 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 my entertainments, right? Now, if you asked him, like, why did she make you do all this? He'd go, what are you talking about? We're talking about my, my affections got reoriented. No one's come making me do anything. I'm expressing all the things that I should have been expressing for years. But it's different now, and it's driven by delight because I beheld something. And I'm willing to make things that might seem difficult, like changes to my finances, changes to other things, because I beheld. And that's what Paul's telling us. Boy, if you can just see what I saw, and you need to do it together, why? Because, I showed, because the Lord shows different parts of himself to different people. I get an insight. I contribute it. Oh, I never saw Jesus that way. Right? Pastor Andre gets an insight. I never thought about that. We're leading worship. They sing a song. I've never thought about Jesus that way. Right? And it accelerates my discipleship and my, and, and, and my beholding. So here's the thing. Once you find Jesus incredibly beautiful... I won't have to tell you what to do. You don't have to tell young men what to do. He goes on this journey of just, oh, she likes the ballet. We're going to the ballet. Right? Oh, she likes this kind of food. We're going to find the nicest place in town. And does he go, oh, man, I have to do this. So expensive. He goes, no, I'm enjoying this. And it's squeezing out other parts of my life. And he doesn't go, oh, man, I lost video game Friday nights. Right? Instead, he's like, man, those guys are slobs. I'm so glad I'm done with them. Right? <laughs> Not here, of course, where I come from. Right? <laughs> right? So, right? Like, he doesn't go, oh, man, what a loss. The, 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 the thing is, when we find something majestic and beautiful, it naturally begins to cut things out. Right? In fact, I wonder sometimes if our problem is we've gone as far as we can go with, with everything we're trying to manage. In other words, if you discover a superior affection, it will cut other things out, right? If, if he beholds her, pursues her, and nine months from now, uh, he's still hanging out with his friends. He's maybe still calling the old girlfriend for coffee a little bit, whatever. She's going to be like, no, 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 no. If you want to behold and enjoy the fruit of beholding, it's going to take some shifts, right? And, and eventually it, it ends up with running into marriage, which cuts everything off. There's things you can't do anymore. There's things you now have responsibility for. And people gladly embrace those constraints and those responsibilities. Why? Because they beheld something. It happens over and over and over. And I think sometimes we're actually trying to compel people, be Christian, do what Jesus says, and they're actually not fascinated yet. Right? They actually haven't beheld him yet. Maybe they don't don't know him yet, or, or maybe they just haven't beheld him, that their heart's pulled, but they, you know, in a positive way, the Lord's moving on their heart, but they haven't yet discovered him as, as a superior treasure. Now, I want to give you one other verse that is also shocking to me. <laughs> it's actually very shocking to me. It's found in Isaiah 53. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 3. Again, this is speaking of the Lord. It says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor appearance that we would be attracted to him. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This verse is actually shocking because what this verse says is, the person who is the most beautiful human in all existence, the ultimate human, really. When he came and when he revealed God in the greatest way, which was in his suffering and his death, where he showed us, oh, my goodness, God is self-sacrificing. God is lowly. He's meek. Isaiah tells us, by the way, you didn't like him. 
This is actually a shocking statement. When, when Jesus gave the greatest demonstration of who God is, it was not attractive to you. It's a war, it's a, it, he's saying because of our, our, our condition, our unredeemed condition, we actually don't find true beauty beautiful, which is what we just talked about Paul, right? Paul actually rejected Jesus. He was alive when Jesus was ministering. He, he didn't think Jesus was beautiful. He didn't like the message of John the Baptist and, all, and the disciples. He rejected it until he finally beheld and the Lord opened his eyes. But, but Isaiah is giving us a warning. Guys, you don't actually find him beautiful. Which is why we have to embrace this process of transformation as a community together. It's just not as simple. Jesus is beautiful. Okay, that solves everything. It, it does. But he also warns you, he's not beautiful in the way you've been accustomed to thinking about beauty. So you got to go in a process of detox. you got to go in a process of transformation. When you do, it's going to change everything, right? But you got to embrace a process. you got to put in the effort of doing life with the community, engaging in the rhythms and disciplines that are important but aren't the main objective. They're the tools that, that, that bring you to the main objective. But Isaiah gives us this incredible, I think, warning that it's actually going to take the work of the Spirit. It's going to take a process over time to actually transform your appetites and your visions and everything else so that you can go, oh my goodness, I never, discovered, I never understood what true beauty is. It, 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 it's an extreme example, but I like to think about it about someone with a very unhealthy addiction, right? They view the whole world through one lens. This is what I need. This is what's good. This is what I need. This is what is good. And until you can kind of get them through detox, break the power of the addiction, right? They have one view of the world. This is what's beautiful. This is what I need. This is what it should be like. Once you get them out of detox, they're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea. The whole world's different now. That thing that used to compel me is actually not attractive at all. I've discovered a new space and life and things like that. And that's what Isaiah is saying, is that you think you like God, but when he shows up, you go, oh, he's more humble than I thought. He's actually self-sacrificing. And, and, and to be honest, I think, we, I, I think Isaiah is kind of hinting, guys, you, you, you need to go on this journey that Paul talked about. But because if we're completely honest, uh, a, a lot of believers still find the Marvel Universe more intriguing than the person of Jesus. Those heroes to us are more intriguing. We, we, we might know more about the mythology of Star Wars than we do the backstory of the Son of God. And I think Isaiah is confronting us with that. Guys, you need a transformation in your thinking. And I think that should also give you courage because you may be seeing this morning going, I, I think you're right. Jesus is the most beautiful. But if I'm really honest, though I would never say it, he's probably not the most beautiful person to me, right? But I mean, I honor and respect what he did, but, but, but I'm, I'm not quite connected. And I think Isaiah would say, just go in the process. Like the Lord knows. <laughs> he knows we need a process of transformation and he delights to bring us through that process of transformation. He wants to shape your appetites. In fact, right before Jesus was arrested, he, he said the most interesting thing in John 16. He actually was talking to the apostles and said, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. Now, if I said to you, why do we need the Holy Spirit? My guess, we need it for power evangelism, which we do. We, we need the gifts of the Spirit, which we do. But what's interesting is Jesus didn't mention any of that. He said, I'm about to leave, and you really need the Holy Spirit. And if you look in John 16, he gives you the logic. Here's why you need him, because he's going to tell you what I'm like. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that you need operating among you. Yes, all the rest, of course. The, the, the Lord wants us to essentially reflect his power his love, his everything else. But Jesus said, I'm about to leave, and the number one thing on my mind is you need the Holy Spirit to talk to you about what I'm like because you don't have me in the flesh. But by the Spirit, you can discover who I am, and you can be radically transformed, and you can essentially be detoxed out of our Isaiah 53 
challenge. And again, I think the Lord gave us the Apostle Paul as the most visible apostle. Was he the greatest? I don't know. But he's the most visible. Why? I think because he rejected Jesus on the front end. He said, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested at all. He wasn't one of the main disciples, so he didn't get special access to Jesus. But then the Lord touched him. He transformed him, and Paul became in the image of Jesus, expressing the life of Jesus. So we can all look at him and go, okay, if you can do it for him, you can do it for me. I'm not a persecutor of Jesus. Hopefully you're not. A persecutor of Jesus is people. Hopefully you... Um, but even if you are, even if you rejected Jesus in the flesh, I can still transform you and remake you in powerful, in powerful ways. And so this, this process of transformation from beholding is, is not just a Christian method of discipleship. It's actually the way you're made. I'll, I'll, I'll give you an, an example. This is so fundamental to how we are. It's, it's the way we're designed, and the, the, the reason we're designed this way is quite simple. God declared, I'm going to make a creature. That creature is going to be an image of me. Image means reflection, essentially. I'm going to create a creature and give him the dignity of reflecting me into creation, looking like me, which means if you're an image, by nature you find something to reflect. We can convince ourselves that we're independent islands, self-made humans, whatever, but our wiring is find something majestic, reflect it. We do it subconsciously. Like I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. All of our shopping malls are designed on this premise. Right? All of our business in the retail space is designed on this premise. Because what happens? I walk into the mall. I see the model. Or the mannequin, oh, that looks good. If I bought that, I could look like her or like him. And then I engage in the process of transformation. I purchase the thing to get it into my wardrobe so that I look differently. It's wired into you. Oh, that looks good. He looks good. She looks good. Let me image what he or she is wearing and imaging. I mean, it's almost as if the business world understands how humans are made better than we do, right? I mean, where I come from, probably one of the greatest examples is the NBA. Uh, This might be dangerous to mention, but where I come from, people really like LeBron James, but some really don't. That's why it's dangerous. That's that's, like, yeah, see, I'm, I'm already in shaky ground, right? Shaky ground. But when people look at LeBron, they go, some, just run with me. You can pick your other person. Um, They go, that's amazing. So what happens? Nike comes and goes, hey, I'll give you a billion dollars if you'll wear my shoe. Okay, great. LeBron's like, sure, make a shoe for me. Then what happens? Everyone goes, I need LeBron's shoes. Now, Now think about that. Do you need LeBron's shoes? The answer is no. I can wear all of LeBron's shoes. Will I ever do anything LeBron does? <laughs> Can't, <laughs> right? No, I mean, he, I mean, I can do his oxygen chamber, I can run down the court, I can do all the things. LeBron and I will never play one-on-one, it would be humiliating, right? <laughs> but everyone's like, I need LeBron's shoes. Why? You don't do what LeBron does, you don't even go to the gym. <laughs> At all. You're not even in shape, <laughs> right? Much less can you, you know, fly through the air and dunk and do all all that other stuff. No, no, but I need LeBron's shoes. Why? Because he's become beautiful and fascinating, and I need to imitate him. Now, did you consciously do that? I want to imitate LeBron. No, no, no. You watched LeBron, and you went, he's amazing. And now you have shoes. You might even have a jersey in your wardrobe. I don't know. Where I come from, they buy the jersey, too. So Nike's making billions of dollars. Because they know that whatever you behold, you will become. Now, will you be LeBron? No, but you're going to do everything you can to be like him. Are you going to be Jesus in the divine sense? No, but if you see him as the most beautiful, you will become far more like him than you imagine. And and, in fact, that's what he always wanted, a people like him. 
He's the firstborn among many brethren. But that has to start with seeing him as the most majestic one. And somehow our marketing gurus have understood how we're wired better than us. Right? And so what you, what you see happening in the mall every weekend, what you see happening when people are buying and selling and all of that is, is actually uh, the, the way the human, the human heart is, is wired. Let me also say, say a couple things that have been on my heart this, this, this whole week. One is that often when we get in environments like the ones we live in, we say, oh, that, that sounds really good, but, you know, it's difficult because we're affluent, we're comfortable, we're this and we're that. And, and, and I just want to say this quite boldly. The Apostle Paul did not think that way. We kind of think that, the, well, the places we're in that are affluent are difficult for the gospel because they're comfortable, because we have much. It's really, really hard to, to be like the apostles. But when you think about Paul, where did he go? He found the most affluent, comfortable cities. He expected the gospel to thrive. He expected a vibrant church. And I just, the places where we live, we need to have a fresh courage and not put the, well, that sounds all good, but I, you know, I think I could be like Jesus if I lived in a really difficult place. Paul would say, I don't think so. Paul, Paul did his most stunning miracles in Ephesus. Luke just says, strange and unusual miracles, whatever that is. Because it's not deliverance, not healing, it's unusual signs. And Ephesus was a city of power, influence, prosperity. I mean, to this day, you can go see Ephesus, and the ruins are still stunning. What's left is stunning, so how much more when Paul was there? Paul was like, I'm going into Philippi, which has a lot of money because of the gold mines. I'm going into Thessalonica. I'm going into Corinth, which had a lot of money because of the trading port. And he expected the gospel to thrive. And I, th I think we have to reorient our thinking and go, if we have a gospel that can't survive affluence or influence, we don't have a gospel. We might have a, something therapeutic, but it's not a gospel. A gospel is, I transform humans in my likeness I'm so majestic and I'm so beautiful. I can catch the eye of the person in deep trouble in a difficult situation, but I can also capture the gauge of someone that has everything the world can offer within grasp. I'm that majestic. I'm that, that beautiful. And the other thing I would say is I, for probably 20 years, I've loved the subject of Antioch, and I know you guys love it very deeply as well. But I want to say this. The, the issue of Antioch is not necessarily... Oh, an influential city. There are lots of influential cities in the first century. True, this Ephesus, which was not so far from Antioch, was more influential, more power. The, the, the issue of Antioch is not, oh, influential city. The Lord may use that in his design, divine purposes. The issue of Antioch is what does Antioch produce? And based on the text, meaning the scriptures, the scriptures highlight out of Antioch came Paul and Barnabas. Out of Antioch came a man who had been so captured by the vision of Jesus that it reoriented his entire life, and his grand ambition became, can I express the life of Jesus? I want to be so much like Jesus that I would choose suffering. To prove it to God? No, not at all. He doesn't, he doesn't need me to prove my love. He knows who I am, right? To feel bad for my sins? No, 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 no. I've already repented. <laughs> like, I don't need to pay a penance of that kind. He, instead, he said, I want to embrace suffering because God embraced suffering. I don't want to embrace suffering in general, but I'll embrace the suffering the Lord leads me into even so that I can become like Jesus. That's what Antioch produced, the Apostle Paul, who became an expression of the life of Jesus that could contend in affluent places and could also express the life of Jesus even to the point of suffering. Paul even expressed that when he wrote to the Colossians. He said, in my body, I'm doing my part to express the life and sufferings of Jesus for your sake. And if you want to go on a journey to go, what, what does Antioch mean? The Lord may use, will use sovereign factors for his purposes. We know that, right? He used Roman roads. He used influential cities. But what he's really going is, here's what Antioch is. It can produce an Apostle Paul. It's an incubator. 
where men and women that think like that can get produced, and then the Lord can set them in places wherever he likes. He may, he may leave them in that city. He might send them out. He might do something different. But we've got to reorient our thinking that Antioch is not so much about the external factors that the Lord might use. It's about the producing of, of a vessel like that. So let, let, let me finish with this. I, I, I know inevitably you're going to kind of go, yeah, but tell me what to do. <laughs> what are the five things I need to go home and do? I know that question's coming. I understand it. I'm a human also. And here's what I would say. Whatever helps you behold the person of Jesus with other people over time, embrace it. I said in the beginning, there are lots of books on discipleship, techniques on discipleship. I think probably most of them are all incredibly valuable as long as you know the main objective. The main objective is not that I do these five things every week, so I'm good. No, no. If those five things lead me to discover a person, and then I'm being transformed. So what do you do? Whatever leads you to behold that person. Like, like, I intentionally don't want to give you and me something to do. I want us to get forced into a conversation with the Holy Spirit. What would you have me do? I don't want to say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to, you need to read the Bible and pray 30 minutes every day. You might go, 30 minutes every day, I already do an hour, I'm good. Or you might go, I have a young child, I'm not quite sure how to find 30 minutes of silence at all. <laughs> right? These aren't the measurements we're evaluating by. It's, is Jesus beautiful to me? Has he captured my attention? If he's captured your attention, things will reorient. When a young man finds a beautiful woman, he reorients. Some seasons, he might go, oh, I've got two hours a day to spend with her because I'm in school. No, now I'm in my internship. I actually only have 15 minutes to see her, but I text her throughout the day. I ponder, I reflect. So do the things that, that lead you to that because I know that's painful for me to say. I'll throw a few things your way, but still it's have the conversation. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you. But if... That the, the, the things I'll toss your way is basically what the scripture tells us to do. Paul told us to sing to each other. Sing. We're to give attention to the word. Give attention to the word. We're commanded to hear the word in teaching. Leaders, elders are commanded to teach. Listen to the teaching of the word. In other words, all the rhythms of life you're doing in the church are the ways to behold Jesus. It's, it's not that there's a new thing we have not discovered it's just that we need to align the things we're doing with what the Lord actually desires. Some, some people can say, okay, if you're saying beholding, that sounds a bit experiential or, or, or mystical. Maybe you're just talking about the worship, the, the worship time. No, I, yes, we can behold Jesus in worship when music touches our emotions and when the lyrics are Jesus honoring. But I think I've had some of my greatest beholding insights listening to someone break down the word. And I'm like, oh, I never thought about Jesus that way, right? You can have it counseling another believer. Let, let's think about Jesus in this situation. How would he lead you? Oh, you're right. I'm not reflecting the person of Jesus, and I want to. Okay, that's your resolution. Let's aim for ref the, the knowledge of Jesus in your current situation, your current pressure. So we, we can get, as we give ourselves to the rhythms of our life together, right, teaching, the word, singing, prayer, interactions, and all of those we can actually behold. And so I would say, do whatever leads you to that. You may say, well, I was discipled by this person that gave me these three rhythms. I've done them. They've been very helpful. Yeah, keep doing them. I'm not at all saying those aren't helpful. If they lead you and you go, oh, I'm seeing glimpses of Jesus with the other saints. It's transforming me. Then, then let's go on that journey. So I want to invite the worship team to come up. We'll, we'll, we'll finish this morning. But so, so again, sure, be disciplined, right? Uh, uh, avoid things that are unhelpful, right? There are things we should not do because they're unhelpful. There are things we want to do because it's walking in integrity. It's how the Lord would have us live, uh, before him and before and before others.
Use whatever tools and techniques help you. Glean from others in the, in the body who have found certain rhythms and disciplines and habits helpful. But what the Lord really wants to invite us into is, I want you to rediscover the beauty and majesty of my son. If you see that, so many things will reorient. And the, and the other thing you need to know is that he has secured your ability to behold by his blood. It is not spiritual for you to go, I had a bad week, so I'm going to kind of do better the next few weeks, and then I'll get a little closer to Jesus. Then I'll sit a little further forward at church. That's not holy. What's holy is Jesus wants me to know who he is, and he paid the most awful and terrible price in his blood. And so if I had a bad week, the most holy thing I can do is put confidence in the blood of Jesus and approach and give Jesus what he wants your fellowship, your communion, and ultimately your transformation so that he gets people like him. It's Romans 8, that he becomes the firstborn among many brethren. So you can behold if you know Jesus this morning. The blood has secured it all, and I think a lot of us need to put more confidence in the blood than our opinions, our emotions, our accusations. Because of the blood, because of the gift of the spirit, because of the gift of the body, we can behold. Let's not make it so mystical that we overlook just the, 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 the practical tools the Lord's given us and the power of his blood that enables us to draw near and, and to see. So, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We trust that you spoke to us the things that are on your heart, and we say thank you for it. We receive this word. We ask you for the things that you wanted to speak to us this morning, that they would abide with us, they'd remain with us, they'd produce great fruit. We ask anything that maybe wasn't helpful, that, that, that we would just forget that, we would not lay hold of it. And Lord, we just ask for two things. We ask one, for a fresh confidence, that we would stand before you entirely because of the blood of Jesus. We would not find confidence in what we've done. We'd find confidence in who you are and what you've done. I'm just asking you right now, you'd break the power of any accusation that's in any heart this morning, that hearts would be liberated and set free. They would draw near to you in confidence. And then, Father, we do ask you, would you reveal to us the great beauty of your son? Would you do what you did for the Apostle Paul? You opened his eyes. You transformed him by showing him things he'd not seen, though he knew incredible amounts of information about them. We just ask you for that spirit of wisdom and revelation as Paul described it when he prayed for the Ephesians. God, give us revelation. We want to see your son rightly. We want to be captured by him Sunday and Monday and Thursday and Saturday and all throughout the week. And so we ask you for that gift of revelation to be among us in the most simple and straightforward ways that we would begin to discover your son in new ways. We would provoke each other and that you would bring about a transformed people that might yet express the life that was found in that city of Antioch, a, a people that would demonstrate who you are, be a flesh and blood witness of who you are to the coworkers and friends and family members all throughout their city and their neighborhood. So Father, we ask release confidence and revelation this morning. Fresh confidence and fresh revelation, we ask you in Jesus' name.